Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 208. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we'd been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore on Twitter, filling in for my normal co-host, John White, at VJourneyman. We are a couple of pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. This week, we start a new series of interviews with Anudeep Parhar. He is the Chief Operating Officer for Digital Operations at Entrust. So let me pose a question. How does someone who started out as a heads-down developer gain a seat at the CEO's table? That's a pretty big jump and a pretty big difference. Well, in part one, we're going to learn about his interest in cutting-edge technology and how he studied computer science. Listen closely for some comments as you take this episode in. You'll find that Anudeep was interested in the technology, but also how it's used by businesses. We'll hear about Anudeep's move into people management and some of the struggles that came along with that. He'll talk about the difference between being a frontline manager and managing managers, and then leveling up from there. So here we go with part one of our discussion with Anudeep Parhar. I'm Deep Parhar. Welcome to Nerd Journey. Hey, Nick. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's a pleasure. It's going to be a good conversation today. Can you start by telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do today, please, sir? Absolutely. So, as you mentioned, Nick, my name is Anadeep Parhar. I am the Chief Operating Officer for our digital operations at Entrust. And Entrust is a, is a technology company. We are based out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. We're globally headquartered here. It's a global company, uh, but we, we service two broad sectors, our payments and identity market, as well as our digital solution and cybersecurity market. So those are the two markets that we that we service our customers and clients globally. I appreciate that. Well, before you get to COO, there's a lot that comes before that. So we're going to go into the Wayback Machine, Anudeep. It looks like, from what I researched, you actually pursued computer science. Tell us a little bit about why, what made that interesting to you. So, you know, it, it might sound a little low, but hey, this is the only thing I'm good at, you know. It was easy for me, frankly, and this is, a, I go back to the 80s, which dates me. I grew up in a in a very academic environment. You know, both of my parents were academics. I grew up uh, at a university in New Delhi in India. And so I was around some of the stuff always, and especially around cutting-edge technology back in those days when... You know, even uh, punch cards and mainframes and all that was uh, was considered posh. Generally speaking, you know, from a career development point of view, this is something uh, when I was growing up, people pushed towards more of engineering and STEM types, the type disciplines, if you have the aptitude and the attitude. I tried to do other things, but frankly, this is what I was good at. You know, I remember the first day I wrote my, my first program, like, this is actually fun. That's how it started. And, and I really don't have any other skills. This is all I do. This is all I know. 
What was the first language you learned, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, you know, we started, you know, it, I was in, I think, eighth or ninth grade, yeah, and we used to have BBC Micros. So we used to write, like, what was considered sort of a proprietary basic language that they had. These uh, these yeah. were, they, these had, like, you know, bespoke languages that were built for those particular computers. Now, this is way before even PCs were a thing. Oh, very cool stuff. Good skills to build on. You actually pursued a bachelor's and a master's. Any specific reason for getting the master's too? It's sort of, I'm, I'm a learning sort of creature. I like to learn new things, and that's sort of a source of energy for me. At least at that point it was, uh, and learning more about technology. When I finished my bachelor's, that was your hardcore computer science stuff, meaning the, you know, going back to the data structures and, you know, algorithm development, et cetera, et cetera which a lot of people nowadays just take for granted, but these are fundamental and foundational computer science constructs. Abstract mathematics, you know, how actually state machines, finite state machines, that kind of stuff works. And it was very important then, you know, and I think it informs in my mind a very interesting point of view of how things that uh, that we see on a daily basis on our, our laptops, our mobile phones, et cetera, how they actually work uh, and gives you that depth. It, you know, you don't use it on a regular basis, but it helps you do that. But from a from a master's perspective, there was two principal reasons. One is sort of my personal background, my family background. That sort of was expected. Uh, and the other thing is, uh, at least at that point, the, the, the choice generally was, when I was growing up, all of the advice I used to get is do engineering and go do MBAs or something. And that's how you get into business. Uh, but given where I grew up, I got some really solid advice from my parents as well as uh, sort of some of the mentors that I had, you know, people who used to work with my, with my dad and my mom, was uh, around saying, you know what, on-the-job management is a lot better experience. But given that in those days, computer science and so the basic computing was exploding so much, this is, uh, and again, I, I have a smile on my face. I talk about, people are talking about, I think interconnectivity and networking is going to be huge. It might be a thing. Yeah, it might be. You know, this is like literally saying, how do you have two computers talk to each other? And just, you know, and, and the only way to learn those things wasn't, you couldn't just go to Google, right? So you had to go to school to learn these things. There wasn't any on-the-job experience you could get. Uh, so, so that was one of the principal reasons. I was interested in learning about some of the, emerging sort of cutting-edge tech, which was supposed to change business forever, and there was no other way to do it except go to school. Okay. Did you start as a software developer at Thomson Reuters? Because I just see that it says Senior Director of Technology. I'm really curious about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm an engineer by trade and training, so, you know, that's pretty much all I've done. My, my, my very first gig, official sort of gig, so to speak, was, yeah, I was a hands-on developer. You know, that's what we used to... Uh, the, my first job was we, and again, this is going to sort of date myself, but it builds your sort of, so to speak, technical chops. This is before like an 80 gig hard drive used to be a massive deal. So most of the, the storage devices were still CDs and a lot of financial services and legal organizations used to have uh, CD towers in their offices, which could be accessed via their personal computer. So it's interesting. So, we, so I, my first gig was writing some uh, publication software where you can take uh, digital content and publish and press it on a CD in a format that is searchable using, you know, terms and connectors, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, you put it in CDs on CD racks, which can be used by law firms and financial institutions to be able to do their research. So, so yeah, but to your point, yeah, I'm a, I'm a heads down developer. That, that's what I've done for upwards of 20 years. 
I know you're in the finance fintech space now. Is that where the interest in fintech started? Yeah, both financial services and sort of content-based stuff. Part of it is serendipitous. I'd like to say that, you know, it was all well-planned, but, you know, part of it is serendipitous. So when I got the Thompson gig, this is... So when I left in 2009, it was called Thompson Reuters. But when I joined in in early 90s, it was neither Thompson or Reuters. It used to be called West Publishing. It it was a a very forward-looking technology company, which was trying to take legal and financial content and put it on digital media. Uh, This is like Digital Transformation 101 30 years ago. We, you know, the, the basic part is take content, you know, which the financial people as well as the legal people can use to be more efficient in what they do on a, on a daily basis. You know, as you know, both of these disciplines are based quite a bit on research, on precedence, on being able to look up uh, historical information to be able to do what if analyses and so they are very rudimentary decision control systems purely based on research. Uh, so one was to build media where you, where you can put digital content. And the second was, uh, and this is again going to sound funny. This is before you gotta get, you gotta know, like, you know, this is before Google, before any of the searches, before internet. This is when Netscape and Mosaic were just getting oh, yeah. to be a thing. The natural language algorithms, you know, in the natural language search algorithms, because the traditional way of searching content was very, very nerdy, not to use the word, you know, uh, uh, in the wrong way, was like terms and connectors. Right, you have to search for things like this and or this, if that, that kind of, you know, it's a sort of a pseudo language, but the natural language searching was, and practically speaking, used to build search engines, which would allow you to, for example, you know, search a large corpus of legal data and documents for, with verbose content, like say, give me all cases in the, in the, in the state of New York, in the jurisdiction of Manhattan, where, you know, personal injury was involved with a banana peel and the rain involved. So it'll actually go do that converting terms and connectors and bring back content that, that did that. So, so it was sort of a lot of fun doing that. Uh, but that's, but to answer your question directly, that's where the very first sort of indication I remember was in the, you know, about 95, 96. And I'm like, hmm, interesting. The tech is very cool, but the, the realization that how professionals and businesses actually use it was very cool. To be able to say that how you make a financial professional, a financial services professional, or a legal you know, a professional better at their jobs. Uh, this is before transformation and digital transformation, et cetera, were a thing. But this was a very, very early nascent form of digital transformation to be able to sort of find that out. But yeah, so that's where, that's where I got my chops, content-based systems, both sort of financial services, et cetera. Oh, man, that's fascinating about the algorithms. What I find is a lot of technologists don't often really dig into what the business they work for does. And sometimes that actually ends up making them less valuable than they could be if they knew a little bit more about it. I completely agree. So I was, at a, I was at a discussion here locally in Minneapolis. You know, we have a lot of, of these community events where the technology leadership people sit down and, you know, you sort of try to mentor people, try to sort of have open discussions, et cetera. And one of the things, usually in these types of venues, one of the consistent themes that I bring is and this is not for everyone, but more and more, if we expect technology exec leadership to be a critical part of the business, you have to have the understanding in terms of saying you have to be able to explain in a fairly uh, a non-technical fashion how your company makes money and not just say we, we, you know, we sell this or we health insurance or whatever else. No, it has to be like, how does the actual business work? And it's not for everyone, but but more and more 
at least in the last two decades, what I've seen is unless you understand that, your job is not as much fun. You become more of a, you, you don't create value, you sort of just an enabler of value creation. And again, you know, there, there is a lot of money to be made and a lot of careers to be developed in both. Personally, I've always had a drive to be that, you know, you got to be in line of sight of revenue, no matter what you do. And uh, even if you are essentially cost for the business, you got to be worrying about productivity and how you enable growth, et cetera. And if you do not bring that point of view, how would you expect the organization around you to be able to do that? So that's sort of how I look at it. And I ask these questions all the time to my peer group and other up and coming, you know, uh, technology leadership types. It's like, hey, how do you make money? Can you explain it? You know, you, what's your go to market? And a lot of times people are like, well, that's not my job. I'm like, well, that's how you're going to limit your career. And people who are interested in that are, you see that they, they have a really interesting career trajectory. And do you find that? the people who get interested in that are very likely to go into a leadership role? Yes. Or have you seen individual contributors that do this well too? Uh, there are individual contributors who are really good at it. You know, the, the, the really interesting thing I like about technology sort of career development is it's not, it's not a, a linear path. It's not sort of linearly you do things and go up like other disciplines. So one of the reasons I like the technology career path and technology discipline so much is there is a lot of zigzagging you can do to move your career up. There is need for God programmers. There is need for God architects and QA and implementation and network engineers. There is a lot of need for that. There's a lot of money to be made. But in order to be effective, not even exact leadership, et cetera, in order to be really good at what you do, uh, the higher up you go in the organization, whatever that means for individual career path, you have to sort of understand every day when you come in the business impact you're making. And if you're not able to articulate that, I think you would be limited. That doesn't mean that you can have a bad career, just like you're, you would be limited. And I see a lot of high potential, high performing individual contributors get very frustrated because they do not have the vantage point in their careers to be able to have those conversations. They get relegated to be saying, when we understand what we need from tech, we'll come back and tell you. And that's where career gets derailed because they are like, I have ideas, but I do not have that internal brand, so to speak, that people even expect me to talk about what the business uh, that we are in. So, so I think that's that, but I, I don't think it's, it's uh, specific only to exec leadership. It, I think you can be an individual contributor, be really good at your job. I think if you're a, uh, if you're a developer, if you're a tester, you know, if you're a network guy, if you understand what the business is, that will make you better at your job. That's just a fact. And if you, people don't believe in, they're wrong. Yeah, I would agree as well. And that's that's kind of the secret sauce to getting your idea approved. I, I want to do this thing with technology or otherwise. And, well, it doesn't really fit within what the business is doing or where it's going or how we make money. So it's challenging to say, yeah, we're going to spend money on that. Yeah. So I'll give you an example. And there are several sort of funny examples when it happens where you see sort of people. And I don't mean to sound sort of pejorative or I don't want to diss these, the skill set in any way. There is not everybody needs to be either extremely technical or extremely business. I think it's more in the terms of the context of our conversation, career development good or bad i'm not even saying it's good or bad is mm -hmm. these are the kinds of skills and talents and, and and sort of perspectives that that people look for so for example right i so one of my, my master's thesis around was around what what's called retargeting of target code to different hardware implementation which is just a very nerdy way of essentially saying what java does you write code and then irrespective of the understand the underlying microprocessor architecture, you can sort of retarget the code to that hardware architecture. And you guys know that back in the day, 
the software and the hardware were very tightly coupled. So anyway, so we know that. Uh, so when uh, when I, you know, this is like the, at, the, at Thompson being the first for five, six years we were there, and a bunch of guys were talking about, we got to move our stuff to from C to C sharp or whatever C++ at that time, or like Java, but nobody could explain why. And the answer always came back to, but, but it's better. Like better how? And unless you're able to explain it to people, what, so to speak, and I'm doing air quotes now, the business benefit of it is, it is going to be like, yeah, just a bunch of tech guys talking about technology. They just want to swap technology because it's just new shiny object. But if you talk in terms of productivity, in terms of enabling growth, creating value for your customers and your partners, et cetera, it's just a different way of talking about it. And suddenly people are like, oh, yes, I should be enabling newer technology and upgrading technology, et cetera, to be able to do this. And this happened the same thing with Microsoft stack. When .NET came out, everybody was like, well, you got a good .NET. Why? It's better. Better how? I've seen it happen so many times. It happens today as well. You know, you know now with chat GPT and everybody, everybody well, that's where we, get, where we gotta go. Like, but why? Unless we are able to at least talk about it, that uh, how does it impact our business? You know, it's, it's just a piece of tech. Well, there's a deeper level to that as well in communicating with people in ways and terms they understand. So if I'm communicating with my direct line manager or my manager's manager, there are different things they're looking to hear, looking for from the conversation, maybe different terms that they use, and they probably have, to your point, a deeper understanding of the business itself. So I need to make sure and adjust my communication so that I'm effectively saying, to your point, why do we need to do this? Absolutely. And I think that is something, it seems like that's a skill that we don't we don't often get taught or or develop when coming through the ranks. You're absolutely right. I think a lot of it is, uh, and you know, this is just one guy's point of view. I mean, I don't, I don't have like empirical evidence that uh, it cannot be done any other way. Some of this comes from uh, one is the desire. Not everybody has the desire, and I think that's absolutely fine. And we can talk a little bit more about it at various levels where you know you just have to be dangerous enough technically, and you got to have enough chops, but you don't really. You know, you're expected to be more business savvy, so to speak. And I do that in air quotes as well. But, you know, there are, there are several cases where you know, it's, it's just leading by example. You have to create an environment, no matter what. If you're an individual contributor, you have to spend your own time learning about these. If you've caught the news this morning, even with the labor numbers the way they are, how's that going to impact macroeconomics? Does it, do I need that in my day job? No. You know, our CEO just sent out a note talking about his point. It surrounds your thinking in terms of how you, look at the business. I think a lot of it comes down to is by example, making people aware of how you think about these things. And then naturally some people will gravitate towards saying, hey, I gotta learn more about this stuff as well. But there is no sort of playbook in my mind, so to speak. It's, it's, it's just more of a mindset that, uh, that if, you, if you're interested, you should learn. And if you learn, I think you'd, you'd, your career will progress. Both your sort of growth and earning potential will increase if you are more savvy, so to speak. Agree. Speaking of mindsets, we've had many guests on the show who shared with us that if you want to go into people leadership and beyond, you really need to have a different mindset than the individual contributor does. What made you want to go into people leadership and how did your mindset shift when you did that? It looks like that started at Thomson Reuters at some point. I don't really know. I mean, there wasn't a time where it was like a switch. I always sort of, and maybe this is sort of old school, I never really thought, I mean, you know, you, the individual contributor word itself 
was didn't exist. So if you needed to grow your career, people manager was just part of that journey. That's how it was. Later in the in the technology evolution, so to speak, of the ecosystem is when the, in the, the term individual contributor was a little bit more part of our human resources vernacular was when people found that there are some technical people, they don't, they're really good at what they do. They are, you know, instead of the typical nine block where we say, you know, these are subject matter experts, we need them. We need them to do certain things really, really well, but we don't need them to manage people. We don't need them to do that. So, so in my mind, that's, it wasn't sort of an explicit pivot, so to speak, that someday I woke up with saying, oh, I should go manage people. I just, that's what I thought that you needed to do. Otherwise, you're just pounding code all day long, and I just didn't want to do that all day long. That's fair. Yeah, I guess I was also just wondering if I have this interest in how the business works, I may not necessarily have an interest in leading a team of people, for example. Okay, I got that. I, I think that's absolutely fair. That That is absolutely fair. You do not. And individual contributors can be, there is no reason to say that you have to lead a team to understand the business better. No, there are several positions, even at exec levels, where you have a team of like one but you you are a critical driver of the business because, uh, you know, so, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Now, what would you tell someone, Adidip, having said what you just mentioned, like I thought that leadership was just the way you're supposed to go and that's kind of what happened. What would you tell someone today with the distinction between individual contributor and people leader that it really takes to be a successful people leader and how can they determine if that's what they want to do or if they want to stay individual contributor? Not everybody is predisposed to sort of interpersonal skills. That doesn't, that's not a knock. That's just the people are people. There are some people who just don't either care for it or don't want to do it. I, I think a little bit of self-realization is important for people to know, is this something that I want to do? Uh, because as you move into people leadership, there's a journey. You know, it takes a while to sort of figure out that increasingly more your time goes towards enabling the team to be effective rather than you being effective, which means is that you do less and less, you know, I do air quotes again, like real stuff. You do more enabling and getting work done with a team of people rather than one. So it's, it's a little bit different skill and you have to enjoy doing that. Uh, a lot of technical and especially engineering minded people. And I went through the, that myself. You cannot sort of be a God engineer plus manage people then you will not have work-life balance. You will basically be pounding code at night and managing people during the day. So you have to sort of explicitly understand that you're going to make some trade-offs. Uh, and the second thing is, at least in today's environment, uh, business environment, compared to when I grew up uh, professionally, so to speak, I don't think you have to go through people management in order to be successful. Uh, the industry, pure from a tech perspective, as well as from a broader digital transformation perspective, there are very strong roles, which traditionally would have been individual contributor roles. They, you know, they may have smaller teams around them. They may not have like thousands of people that they need to manage, but they will be still a smaller team. But they are very higher in the organization because uh, more and more businesses are finding out. And if, for example, if you see very large organizations, Microsoft, Amazon, you know, United Healthcare, a lot more of their exec CTO type positions are very close to not managing giant teams and building products. It's around saying you got to give people high enough jobs so you have, so to speak, the positional authority to be able to make some of these choices. But at the same time, you get to spend a lot more time thinking about technology and how it will transform the business. You cannot do that if like 
two thirds of your time is going towards people management. So I think there is, you know, the point being is I don't think, uh, unlike it was at least when I was coming up through the ranks, you don't need to go through that. I think there are positions in organizations where you can be a strong technical person, lead a small team, and still have a very, very meaningful impact on the business and and grow your career potential. Did you struggle with becoming what we would call a little bit less technical, not being the super engineer anymore? Yes. The feeling that you get when, you know, you solve a really tough problem, but the Eureka moment is like, man, that's just awesome. You want to tell people about it. And, but more and more, you have to sort of see is it's, it's what other people are doing. You know, as a team, what you're delivering. I know it sounds very cliche. Your idea of success and sort of that Eureka moment changes. You start enjoying more when teams do work. And then the higher up you go, you know, there is a very clear shift that happens when you're from a, let's say, a manager of individual contributors to manager of managers. It sort of changes the perspective and you have to start being a little bit more empathetic towards that you're working with people managers who themselves are quite career oriented. So you have to, you get further away from, so to speak, real work and you start thinking about the work now becomes as how to build better teams. Uh, and even if, you know, when you're not around, how do you keep delivering all that stuff? So yeah, but I, you know, to answer your question directly, man, I struggled with it. It was hard. It was hard. And it doesn't, like, it doesn't make you less of a person to step up to that level and kind of put something down partially that you used to do full time. Is that, is it loss aversion? Is it imposter syndrome or is it a mix of those? No, you know, the, the imposter stuff, you know, most of techie types, that's always there because, you know, people of a certain age group, you know, it's a lot more different. Uh, even for people in your generation as well, especially my kids, you know, these, my kids are growing up where they think they can take over the world, right? They don't, they're not inhibited by the, the so to speak, the imposter syndrome. I, I very clearly felt it. I still feel it. I'm like, man, uh, I'd be lying, like, you know, 90% of this is serendipity being right time, right place, right opportunity. People think that's what it is. But, you know, it's not entirely true. I don't want to say, if, you know, I don't want to project that. It's a lot of hard work that goes behind it, you know. And I think that that, there is a, that that's important for people to realize that, that these are all natural feelings. I don't think that it is. That keeps a good perspective and good. I think it's a healthy way of looking at it. What would you tell someone who is an experienced frontline manager of individual contributors that wants to take that next step and manage managers or even beyond that? So the first thing I would say is uh, if, if you've chosen sort of the career of managing people, I, I don't think you should shy away from it unless something you don't want to do. So don't think of you cannot do it. And the second thing is invest the time sort of understanding what it takes to lead people who are, are themselves people managers. I, I know it sounds very corporate, but, you know, your line of sight changes. You're expected to sort of, you know, enable people to deliver on themselves. Empowerment becomes a lot bigger part of your job rather than just sort of getting the work done. For example, right, if, if you're running a team of engineers, ultimately, and no, nobody admits it, but generally speaking, the mental model is, well, if they cannot do it, I'll just do it myself, right? You, know, you stay up nights and you get it done. But you cannot do that. Once you're managing people, you have to be able to build skills and chops to be able to get people to do it, which means uh, some of the... Uh, and again, I do air quotes with the softer skills, right? How to do one-on-ones, how to do monthly meetings. You have to be very particular about these things because they become data points for you to drive other people to do it. If you don't spend time on these management frameworks or learning or building these management frameworks, you'll become one of those people that you're, you're, you're a week away from delivery and you have no idea why you're behind. 
everybody did what they were supposed to do and you have no idea why you're behind why things are not working so i think it's a little bit of a different mindset in terms of management frameworks that you need to do so i recommend people highly that spend the time don't think it's obvious you know it's good to read the books and take some classes and sort of figure out what management frameworks most most companies already have frameworks like that so i think it's worthwhile spending the time doing that oh that's a good point i know that at least inside vmware we have programs that train people who want to become managers they can take the training program see if it is right for them number one and then hopefully that leads them to a placement as a as a people leader i didn't realize that was a something you could take advantage of yes yeah so i think that with a lot of organizations you know especially now with the economic cycle that we're going into you know generally what larger organizations especially in your businesses are talking about is people who have been who have been hired during the covid times these are subject matter experts. They're very good at what they do, but the expectation for them to be able to come in and transform the business at all levels is high, but people don't put enough time saying they may not understand how we actually do stuff. At the surface, we understand what the, what the company does, but the internal business policies, the politics of the organization, et cetera. So I think folks are going to put a lot more time into sort of upskilling people at all levels who have entered the organizations in the last you know couple of years. Uh, and I think I think that's going to be that's interesting, and people should take advantage of that. Speaking of upskilling, at some point you went from senior director to more of a VP level, and then chief technology officer. Can you tell us a little bit about that progression and the change in your responsibilities as you walked up that ladder? Sure, I owe a lot of my management and leadership success to my days at Thompson. I learned a lot in terms of how technology organizations work, the ins and outs, and you know, but at some point the organization gets very large and the upward mobility gets harder. So, you know, organizations do it differently. For example, when I left, I think in 2009, Thompson was about a $12 billion business. It was a very large business. So your management frameworks are completely different of how the business runs and how the business works. And, it got, and this is right when Thompson had acquired Reuters. So one of the things you see is like, okay, what, like, what do I want to do? It's like, I would like to be in a position where you're not, you know, just increasingly running bigger teams and larger global teams was not as exciting for me, right? You know, I had hired and built teams who could do that. And, you know, then you sort of sit around, all you do is like status reports and all that, right? So you start thinking about saying, what's the next level where you can make a meaningful impact? And that's where it comes down to is that, you know, you, you have to have positions where you are increasingly walking into rooms you have to sort of strive for those positions where you're increasingly walking into rooms where everybody knows more than what you do, which is they are they are a lot more business savvy, finance savvy, HR savvy, legal. They, they run entire bona fide functions all by themselves. And, and that was exciting for me. And, you know, I had good mentors. I had a lot of good people at Thompson to help me sort of understand that. I was like, oh, nice. I, I want to be that. I want to challenge myself doing that. And then you find out is that, you know, at some point you got to figure out if you want a position like that, you have to look at a different organization. You know, you cannot sort of grow into that role at the same organization. That doesn't mean it cannot have just happened for me uh, that I was like, I got to go somewhere else and I got to learn something else where I can have that type of an impact. And uh, living uh, in the Twin Cities here in Minneapolis and St. Paul, you know, as you guys might know, we, we are a hub of health IT. So, you know, if you want to live here, I think it's good to have some bona fides around, you know, healthcare, you know, both payer and, and provider side. So so I wouldn't say it was all altruistic, but I was like, hey, I got to go check out this healthcare stuff. 
So that's how I got into to, uh, Blue Cross, which is the, the broader healthcare. And it was also a not-for-profit business. So it was a very explicit thing for me that I wanted to sort of find out. I grew up with, you know, commercial, as a, from a professionally, so to speak, the Thompson was red meat eating sales guys, go out there, get, make money, you know, you, you, you deliver a lot of value for your stakeholders, et cetera, et cetera. That was the, 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 the standard thing. But then you, one of the things I wanted to learn personally was like, how does a not-for-profit business work? What are sort of the drivers? How does it function differently? And it was really interesting to go there and sort of go figure that out. Uh, but I explicitly took a different job. I, I wanted to be out of development. I had done it for like 15, 20 years. Like now I, I'm good enough at it and I, I have a big enough head that I thought I could just learn what I was needed on the side. But I wanted an opportunity completely to sort of take myself out of what I was good at and say, you know what, I want to take a look at how do you architect large scale claim systems in healthcare? Or how do you actually, you know, build analytics engines where you can decrease the cost of healthcare for provider systems? Not singularly all by myself, but from a technology perspective, how do you build a better pricing engine or an underwriting engine? These were like things that were very new to me. So you get those skills and then you try to solve a different industry problem with the same technology. And people recognize that, you know, this was very early again in the stages of racial transformation. And, uh, you know, my, my leadership at the time, and especially our CEO at the time was very forward looking and they gave you the opportunity to say, hey, go take a look at this. You know, you can do whatever you like as long as you're able to self-fund it with technology, et cetera. So you start becoming a lot more relevant. And the final thing, personally for me, I like working for technology businesses. So eventually I came back into either uh, businesses which are a lot more technology focused and uh, going from senior director to VP, either other than just that the expectations and the span of control, et cetera, is different, is uh, I wanted to be in my peer group, which is increasingly less technical, so to speak. And that's where I kept driving into sort of new and new positions. You know, when I was at, uh, you know, I was at a, as an e-commerce platform company for, for a couple of years, and I learned a lot of interesting things about how to bring a public business, private, and what sort of is involved with that. And you don't get to do it from a from a mid level manager point of view. You have to be at the you know you have to be at the CEO's table to be able to do that. So that was those are the types of learnings that sort of kept moving. And then from a CTO perspective, you know, when I was at Bloom Health, which was a late stage sort of startup, early growth company, it was really interesting to see that you know you you start integrating you know the expectations of the board, the expectations of the senior leadership team is very different. You're expected to know because you're the CTO, man. You're expected to know the technology piece. You, know, you don't need to come and tell me, like, I wrote, you know, my people wrote some ridiculously good program. Yeah, but of course, you're expected to do that. What are the other functions? Product management. How do you actually be out in the market and understand what the customers want? You, you become an evangelizer for what the company does. You use technical terms to sort of say how it's going to solve the problem. So I, I got a, a very interesting point of view saying that you become sort of the chief uh, loudspeaker, so to speak, from the company, if you're in a technology company, if you're at that level. And I love doing that. I love talking to partners, love talking to customers, love talking to investor relations folks where you can sort of say how technology drives a business. So hopefully that helps answer sort of the transition, how, you know, how these positions help me personally. So many different things to dig into there. I, I like the mention of taking a public company private. That's what Michael Dell's done. We know I've read his book. So I'm sure you learned a lot on that one. I liked your comment about getting used to having everyone in the room being smarter than you. I think that's something that is really hard for people to be okay with. 
Okay, that's where we're going to stop with part one. This was a progression story, and just as we share other progression stories on the show, this was actually a progression of curiosity and learning, if I had to summarize it. Think about it. Anudeep had an early interest in not only the tech, then he got interested in how businesses use the tech, the impact that it makes, but then he started wanting to know more about how businesses work, how they run, how organizations run, how the company makes money, how it makes an impact in the world in some way. So that curiosity progression, I think, is what led him to make some of the moves he decided to make. And if you remember from the conversation, he made those moves to gain experience, to learn, to challenge himself, but also he wanted to make a bigger impact. And I think this goes to personal values. People want to feel that they're making an impact and it gives them a greater sense of satisfaction if they can make an even bigger impact. The experience in being able to take a business from public to private was really interesting to me. I've never been at that level where you're making a lot of the decisions and being at the CEO's table, so to speak. And Anudeep tells us it's a very different experience than just a frontline manager. And let's go back to Anudeep's decision to move into people leadership in the first place, just that transition to frontline manager. He knew himself well enough to know he didn't want to pound code all day, so he definitely didn't want to be a developer forever. He actually thought that making that move was it was something that you are supposed to do to grow your career. And he mentioned to us that the individual contributor term wasn't really a thing. And so what did he do? Well, he focused on the fundamentals. He tells us it's really important to get your fundamental management frameworks down so that you can get other people to do the work. And you can't be the person that says if your team can't do it, you just do it yourself because you will... It's just untenable. That's part of, of what he had to learn. And he, like many others we've interviewed, he struggled a little bit with becoming less technical. I think that's a hard thing for people to do. And let's not gloss over the point about it's not required to go into people management to be successful. He even mentioned some executive level teams of one. So you can certainly continue to progress as an individual contributor assuming the company you're at has a technical career path. Have you taken the time to learn what the business is, the business you work for? I think a lot of times we get lost in what we do and don't often focus on making sure we understand that bigger picture. I know I've been guilty of this in the past. I just wanted to do the tech. I didn't pay attention as much as I should have earlier in my career. But Deep says... We need to make sure we understand what the business is, how it makes money, go to market. And we need to be able to articulate the business impact we're making. Certainly, if you don't know what the business is, you can't articulate the impact you're making on it. So take advantage of putting those together. And that's not something that's unique to the people who go into leadership. This is for the individual contributor as well. And that is something that will serve you well when you ask for things like promotions, when you speak to people who are a level or two above you, that's an important one. So please, please, please don't miss those points from this episode. And do a little reflection. Have I really done enough to know this or or think about it? 
And maybe it's not super interesting to you, but you never know. It it actually could be very interesting to you and take you in a completely different direction that you never even realized. And the last thing I'll say is sometimes you have to move out of the company to move up and do something different. And that's exactly what Deep did when he tells us about his transitions out of Thomson Reuters to to the e-commerce company and also to Bloom Health. We haven't quite made it to where he is now yet. We'll save that for part two. Just a reminder that we want people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter at Nerd Journey. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm Nick Cordy at Network Nerd underscore, flying solo for now. From our buddy John White at V Journeyman, signing off.